you've got a Bible this morning, would you open it up to the book of Philippians? For those of you that have been with us on Wednesday nights as we've read through the book of Acts, you'll recall something really powerful that happened. Of course, the day of Pentecost, we know, is, is huge uh, in Acts chapter 2. Uh, you can imagine what would happen if the church grew from 120 to 3,000 in an afternoon. That, that's a big deal, or in a morning. That's a big deal. You wonder what you're going to preach to those people once they get born again. You got 3,000 of them. What's the first thing you tell them? 3,000 people that have believed and have been converted, have been added to your number. What, what do you tell these guys? What, what, what is the thing that you encourage? What's the first thing you're going to say to all these people? We all have different things, but I'll tell you what Peter said to them. And we've talked about this before, but Peter says, the Bible tells us that Peter, with many exhortations, so he had to say it more than once, over and over, he kept telling them, he said he kept encouraging them, kept exhorting them to be saved from this wicked and perverse generation. Now, saved is a good word. Saved means rescued, Mm -hmm. delivered, that you don't have to be there anymore. You know, he wasn't starting, Peter wasn't proposing that we start a colony somewhere out in the middle of, of the Judean desert. He wasn't saying, let's get away from here, let's get away from these people. So he's not talking about physically being removed from that, from that group of people. He's not telling us, let's get away from them, they're a bad influence on us. What was he saying? Be saved from this wicked and perverse generation. Let the salvation that you have right now that you've just received, let it not just save you from sin. Let it not just save you from death. Let it not just save you from hell and the grave. Let it save you from the spirit of this age. Now that's something that we need even today. We have been saved from hell. We've been saved from death. Now that's awesome. And he has paid the price, not only for us to be saved from the consequence of sin, but from the power of sin. Thank God. But he's also paid the price for you to be saved from a world that has gone astray from the shepherd, from a world that has been twisted and perverted. He says wicked and perverse. Now you understand that you know, when we hear perverted now, we think we think. Uh, in a certain way, when we hear the word somebody's a pervert, we, we, we narrowly define that. We don't think of that very broad. We think of that pretty narrowly. That means a certain thing to us in our, in our culture. But biblically, perverse does not just mean in this area you're messed up. Perverse means it's something that was good has been terribly twisted. Perverse means twisted just, and, and in fact, the, the Greek word that we use for perverse, it, it, it comes from two words, one to separate and one to twist. And so it's, it's a removal and a twisting. It's a removal from what God has, has, has designed for us. It's a removal from God himself, and it's a twisting of what he's created. So we live in a culture and we live in a world where good is called evil. Christians are called haters. Evil is celebrated and called good. Darkness is celebrated rather than light. Fear is celebrated rather than joy. And, and all of these things have become not only acceptable, but predominant in our culture. And it's nothing new. That's the thing. Sometimes we think this is all new. We're facing it for the first time. We're not facing anything that the church hasn't faced for thousands of years. This is nothing new. 
Because as Peter said to these new converts, be saved. And he said it through many different ways, many times exhorting them. Be saved from this wicked and perverse generation. Our English word wicked itself even means twisted. You think of what a wick is on a candle, right? It's, it's, it's got to be twisted. Wicker chairs, it's twisted, right? So wick, and I'm not telling you you can't have wicker chairs. Somebody go home, I'm getting all the wicker out of my house. All the candles out of my house. No wickedness in my house. No, that's, that's way too far. I don't know, I think my mom has said this publicly, so she won't mind if I say it again, but she was so on fire when she first got saved, and she had a degree in computer science. You might not know that about my mom. She has a degree in computer science, back when that meant something. I mean, back, <laughs> back when you had to have punch cards, and you know, I mean, computers took up the size of most of your, you know, homes, right? This is cool. I'm building you up. <laughs> But she was so on fire, she was so determined not to, you know, not to, not to, you know, live in, live in, in the world's way of living that she, she refused to call a cursor a curse and she called it a blesser, which is <laughs> funny. <laughs> if it worked for her. I'm not telling you to get rid of your wick, wicker chairs. I'm not telling you to get rid of your candles. I'm telling you to understand what wicked is. Wicked is not something, you know, Satan has no power to create. He can't create. He's not a creator. He is a created being. Boy, life really makes sense. And we're going to talk a little bit about this this morning. Everything that we believe has to begin with the fact that you have been created by a creator. You've been created. Now, that's why the world's version of life is really messed up. Because when you say that there is no creator, then our point and our purpose in life is merely to survive. We're nothing more than animals. We're just a little bit more evolved than, the, than the, the ones in the zoo. But we're nothing more than animals. But when you believe that there is a creator who has, lives outside of time, and he loves you, and he cares for you, and he knows what's best for you, and he has created you for a purpose, then your purpose is not to survive, but your purpose is the same purpose they had in the Garden of Eden, to know him, to be in relation with him. Now, of course, we say, well, isn't our purpose to get people saved? Absolutely. But our first purpose, you see, what was mankind created for? Adam and Eve didn't have anybody to get saved. What was the first purpose? The first purpose was to know him, to be in relation with him. And that purpose to share the gospel comes out of that first purpose because Jesus came to reconcile man to God. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, bringing us back to relationship. And he has given to us a ministry of reconciliation. So, so that purpose of, of sharing the gospel comes out of the purpose to know him because sharing the gospel is all about bringing other people back to God so that they can know him and have relationship, so that they can bring more people. This is all our purpose in life. And so when you know that, it shapes everything you believe. You have a reason for existing. You're not an accident. You don't have to just live like an animal and just follow whatever your body tells you to do. You've got a higher purpose than that. You've been created the only being on the planet with a spirit, the only being on the planet. I know you stare at your puppy in the eyes, and you can, you're sure that, that the puppy loves Jesus. And I don't know what, what puppy knows, 
But no matter how many times, how big of a Disney fan you are, all dogs don't go to heaven. They don't have an eternal soul. God loves them. God created them. You should love them too. But you're the only being that God created that was in his likeness and that he breathed his breath of life into. And that is a high honor. And that changes everything, doesn't it? Think about it. When our culture tells us that something is right, the argument is, why not? The argument is, it feels good. The argument is, this is what we feel is right, so we do it. When we believe there is a creator, we believe he's seen further than the next 20 years. He's seen further than the next 50 years. He has seen from the beginning of time, and he has created you for something, and he knows why he created you. And so there's a reason that he has given us his word. There's a reason he tells us, live this way, stay away from that. And it's not because he's addicted to some old way of thinking, because he is not only the ancient of days, but he is the future. It's because he loves you. He deeply loves you. So when we talk about a wicked and perverse generation, we were part of it. Of course, last week we talked about this a little bit, um, and and we've talked about it plenty of times before, but uh, the scripture talks about us being rescued from the domain of darkness and being transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's wonderful. You've been rescued from the domain, the power, the control of darkness. You've been transferred to a kingdom. And that changes everything. In Philippians, as we're about to read, with that being on your mind, what Peter encouraged the church, the first thing he's trying to tell those new converts. Now you think about it, most of them, if you'll recall, the people that got born again on the day of Pentecost weren't a bunch of murderers. They weren't a bunch of thieves. What did the Bible tell us about those men and women? It says they were devout men and women from every nation. We're not from every nation, but from many nations. They were devout because the reason they were in Jerusalem was because they had come for the Feast of Tabernacles. They had come for the, for the Feast of Pentecost. This is why they were here, the Feast of Booths. That's why they were there. So they gathered for Pentecost. I'm, I'm mixing up two feasts. I'm sorry. <laughs> Forgive me. They gathered for, the, for Pentecost. They gathered for the feast. That's why they were in Jerusalem. It says those devout men heard whatever was being said in other languages, in heavenly tongues, whatever was being said, they heard it in their own language. But it says there were others that said these guys are drunk. So what it tells me is that there are a group of devout people that God gave the ability to hear these tongues in their own language. And we could talk about how we know it was a miracle of the hearing and not just of the speaking. Because when 120 people are on a stage speaking like 14 different languages, you don't say, that sounds beautiful. They're all speaking my language. You say, it's, it's a mess. It's confusing. In fact, I don't believe they were speaking those languages. Because the Bible tells us each one said, we are all, each one hearing them, them in our own tongue. So they're comparing notes and say, do you hear that? They're speaking Arabic. The other guy goes, no, they're not. They're speaking Latin. The other guy goes, no, they're not. They're speaking my dialect. And they compare notes and they realize they're all hearing them in their own language. 
Go back to Acts 2 and you'll see it for yourself. So here's the deal. 3,000 of them were devout, were seeking God. They hadn't found him, but they were seeking him. And then we find out that there were others there that didn't receive the gospel. Because it says others were still mocking, saying they're drunk with wine. So on that day of Pentecost, there's, there's those that are devout, but they're, you know, like I said, they're not out there doing terrible stuff. They're, the Bible calls them devout. And they got saved. And they still needed to hear this message. As devout as they were, as cleaned up on the outside as they might have been, as whitewashed as the tombs might have been, they still had to hear this message. Be saved from a wicked and perverse generation. Come out and be clean. Isn't that wonderful? Now, if you don't think you need to be delivered from a worldview that's out there, from a paradigm that's out there, from a way of thinking that's out there, you've fallen asleep. Because the truth is, is that this is not, the culture we live in, as much as we love the people in the culture, it is not a godly culture. And we're surrounded every day with things that attack our soul, with things that try to twist again the truth of God. So here's what the Bible says in Philippians. I've been saying that for a while. And one of these days we're actually going to read it. Philippians chapter 2. Of course, Philippians 2 starts out so wonderfully. It starts out with him saying, talking about having the same attitude that was in Jesus, who laid aside, even though he, he could easily be called equal with God, he laid that aside, he emptied himself, he put on the bond, form of a bondservant, he took on that form of humanity and became a servant, and he, he became obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him, gave him the name that is above every name, that at that name every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord. And then he comes to this point. And he says this, so then my beloved, just as you've always be obeyed, not just in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Does everybody notice that it doesn't say work for your salvation? We need to hear a little bit more from you. You know, it doesn't say that, right? I'm making sure you don't have a weird translation that says that. <laughs> Some of you are so quiet. I think you have the uh, Jehovah Witness Bible. Anyways. <laughs> Actually, there's not, a tra- there's not one translation that says work for. It, they all say the same thing, work out. In other words, there is a salvation that God has placed inside of you. Something's changed on the inside of you. We work it out. We live it out. We don't just let that be something hidden deep inside, but we let that be something that can be seen in real life, in 3D, in the world, us living out the gospel, us living out our salvation, it not just affecting what we believe, but what we do. And it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What in the world do you mean by fear and trembling? When something, when you're in the presence of something awesome, when you're in the presence of something magnificent, when you're in the presence of something much bigger than yourself, a little fear and trembling is not a bad thing. I love how the Bible talks about God looking for those that tremble at his voice. But at the same time, he says he's looking for those that delight in his word. We've talked about this before, how they go together to tremble and to delight. And if that doesn't make sense to you, I want you to picture right now how you would feel if you stood in the presence of God himself.
Now, you are in the presence of God, but I'm talking about every sense of yours is overwhelmed by him. You can see him on the throne. You are in the throne room of God, and everywhere you look is his glory. I want you to consider what you'd feel at that moment. There'd be joy. Absolutely. There'd be great joy. There might be a little trembling. And the fear we're talking about is not a fear that makes you run away, but a a reverence and an awe that draws you near. And when you stand in the presence of God, there's something that makes your hands shake because, whoa, I can't believe how big this is, how real this is, how amazing this is. But there's something that makes from the inside, from the core of your being, you rejoice because there's no joy like the presence of God. Now imagine that. That's delight, and that's also fear and trembling. It's not, the, it's not the devil's version of fear and trembling. The devil would fill you with fear so that you will run away from God, so that you'll be scared of him and you won't want to come near him. But God gives you a, a reverence and awe. The fear of God draws you near to God. It says, run to God in a time of trouble. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are delivered. This is the fear of God. So when we talk about this fear and trembling, imagine how you would feel if I placed on you, if I put in your hand a ring that was worth $5 billion. And I said, this is your ring. There would be joy, but there would be a little trembling because you've never had that much money in your hand. How much bigger is the salvation that's been given to us? The Bible calls it, in Hebrews, so great a salvation. Some of us have yet to discover just how delivered we are. Just how delivered God desires you to be. Not partially, not a little bit for show, not just some so that you can say you're delivered, but so delivered that the, that the chains, even the, even the smell of the chains on you cannot be found. You know when the, when the three Hebrew children were delivered? When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hinaniah, Mishael, and Azariah were their Hebrew names. When they were thrown into the furnace and God, it, God not only delivered them, but he stood there with them. And they came out. It says their hair was not singed, their clothing wasn't damaged, and they didn't even smell. Not even a little hint of smoke. That's the deliverance we speak of. We'd be ashamed for us to be delivered from the furnace and have our clothing on fire. It'd be, be a shame. It'd be a shame if we got amongst other people that were still in the fire and we were so ashamed of being delivered that we doused ourselves in liquid smoke so that we would fit in. You've been delivered. How delivered? So great a salvation. Now work it out. Because what's inside of you, the world needs more than they know. We've said this so many times. The world doesn't know what the world needs. The world doesn't know. Your unsaved friends, you don't, you don't, you, you love them. You, 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 you need to be around them. You need to show them Jesus. But, but friends, don't ask them what they need. Because did you know what you needed before you found Jesus? Before Jesus set you free? Did you know? You thought you knew. You knew you needed something. You didn't know what it was. We've said it so many times before, but I love this quote. I love when Henry Ford said, and they said, what, what he's, you know, how did you, did you, did you, 
you know, build what your customers wanted you to build? When you, when you created that first car, what had you do it? And he said, if I had asked my customers what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. They didn't know what they needed. They didn't know what they needed. <laughs> when you first walked into a church, was it what you were looking for? For some of you, yes, you felt love. For some of you felt family, but I guarantee there were some things about being amongst people of God in the presence of God that freaked you out. And that's okay because it's a different world. So he says, work it out. Fear and trembling. In other words, don't take this lightly. Take it so seriously because you think of how great a salvation is within you that it even makes you tremble a little bit, but you're still rejoicing. That's how I felt when Moses first came into the world. I'm not a giggler. I, I don't think I ever giggle. I laugh or I don't laugh. But when Moses came into the world, I giggled and I felt like crying and giggling at the same time. There was, I, there was such an awe at this new life that somehow had something to do with me. And there was an awe and there was a joy. Now look at this. He says, for, this is good news because, you know, if you just focus on verse 12, you say, I got to work harder. I guess I'm not working it out enough. But look what he says in verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you. It's God that's working in you. I mean, some of you just think you got to work harder. No, 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 no. You, you got to let God work in you. For it is God who's at work in you. And what's he working for? He's working both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So thank God, knowing Jesus, this is the difference between trying to lead a good religious life and living a life connected to Jesus. Living a good religious life makes you do the right things, but you're disconnected from it. You're doing it even though you don't want to do it. And sometimes that's where it begins, just doing the right thing even though it doesn't feel like it. Sometimes that's where good things start. But let me tell you, this is what God desires for you. He loves you so much, and he has created you and put himself inside of you so that the more of him you allow in, the more of him. Now, I, I know you've been saved. You haven't got partial Jesus. You, got, you haven't got a little bit of Jesus. You got the full deal. So please understand me when I say the more of him, you got all of him. But the more you allow him to run the show in your life, the more room you prepare for him and his spirit in your life, and the more you push, let, let him push the other stuff out, the more aware of, you are, of him you are at all times, the more you won't just do the right thing, you'll want to do the right thing. Because he's not just working in you to do what he wants you to do. He's working in you to will it, to have the same will as God. Isn't that wonderful? Oh, we want to do God's will. We want to do God's will, but sometimes we talk about it like it's the most terrible life sentence we've ever received. It's a joy to do the will of God. You know what Jesus said? Remember what Jesus said when the disciples were trying to sneak him snacks? Some of you don't remember this. That's from the Jonathan translation, so you don't remember the snacks part was showing up in your Bible. Jesus had just ministered to the woman at the well. She goes back and tells her whole city, I found a guy. I think I found the Messiah. He told me everything about my life. And this outcast, they wouldn't even draw water with. They're all of a sudden excited. And the whole city is about to come to Jesus. And the disciples say, are you hungry, Jesus? You need some food? And, you know, have you ever gotten into that 
times where you're just like, okay, all right, all right, all right. Like, you know, <laughs> there'd be times, none of you, but there'd be times somebody would be at the altar just, oh, you know, Jesus. Oh. And, you know, they're crying a little bit. And, you know, we've, we've, we've trained some folks, you know, if somebody's crying, maybe have a Kleenex ready, but, but don't force it on them. I've seen people crying at the altar and crying at the altar, and somebody's like shaking them like, here, here's a Kleenex, here's a Kleenex, you know, and they just act like they've been snapped out of a, a good dream, like, I don't need a Kleenex right now, you know, that, that feeling, because you're so concerned about their earthly needs that you forget they're in another place altogether. They don't care about the Kleenex right now. Just leave the Kleenex alone. They'll get the Kleenex when they need the Kleenex. I've seen people just force it in their hand. You will take this Kleenex. You will not get snot on your chin. You will take the Kleenex, and you will like it. And you see them just going, all right, all right, all right. You see that in Jesus. A whole city is coming to him. And the disciples say, Jesus, you want some food? You want some food, Jesus? You haven't eaten anything. You, you need some food. Because they're trying to be good ministry of helps. This is what they do, right? And Jesus says, I've got food you don't know about. And they look at each other and go, who snuck them food? <laughs> like they think, see, that's how, that's how stuck on the planet they are and how Jesus is in another place because he says, I've got food you don't know about. And they think he's got a secret stash. Somewhere in his, his robes, he's got an inside pocket and he's sneaking out, you know, a Twix bar or whatever. And so, they still make Twix bars? Yes. For 2,000 years, they've survived. All right, cool. So, Jesus says, I've got food you don't know about. And, and, and they said, who snuck him food? And he says this, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now, you think about what food does for you. Food nourishes you. It gives you strength, doesn't it? Food helps you survive. Food also makes you very happy, doesn't it? If food is not making you happy, you're eating the wrong food. Food is supposed to make you happy. Your brain releases certain chemicals that say this is a happy moment. In fact, we were just talking before the service that that's why you should eat together as a family because when you eat together at the table, you actually, your brain is releasing chemicals that say bond with these people. These are good people. You're eating good food, good people. All right. And you bond with them. That's why the Bible says mark those that cause divisions and don't even eat with them. So I don't want to bond with somebody that's causing division. Ironic, isn't it? So he says my food, food makes us happy. It satisfies us, it fills us, it strengthens us. And he says, you know what does all that for me? You know what gives me joy? You know what gives me strength? You know what gives me life? You know what nourishes me? Doing the will of the one who sent me and accomplishing his work. See, that's where I want to get. When I read this verse and I hear that God is at work in me, not just to do the right thing, but to will it, to have the same will as God, to, 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 to be in line with his will. That's what I want. And that, my friends, is not a life sentence of, of misery. That is finding out what you're really prepared for, what you're really created for. Because the Bible says that not only has God prepared works for you to walk in, he's created you for those works. You are his workmanship, created in Christ, Christ Jesus for good works which he prepared beforehand for you. So you've been created for those things, and those things have been created for you, and it's a match made literally in heaven. I hope I haven't lost you here, because we're still in Philippians. But the point is, living out the will of God is your purpose for life. 
Knowing him is the prime purpose. But to know him, as Jesus said, to know him is also to do what he says. And so he doesn't want you to just do it because you have to. He wants you to want to do it. So he's at work at you to do this. Now watch what it says in verse 14 because it all ties together. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? Because if you grumble and dispute, you just rob yourself of the part of, that God, of what God's doing you to will to do the right thing. You've just robbed yourself of that. Now you're doing something, but you no longer will to do it. You no longer have joy in it. And I, I'm pretty sure there's no life in it anymore. So do all things without grumbling or disputing. Can we do that? That's the most tepid response I've ever heard. Can we do that? Yeah. yeah. All right, all right. Everybody that was helping out yesterday, did you do that? Yeah. yeah. I'm glad to hear that. In fact, I didn't hear one grumbling disputing, or, or the room got very quiet when I walked in, so that was okay. <laughs> do all things without grumbling and disputing, because there's joy in it. Now, I was just using the folks yesterday for an example, but this is not just talking about doing manual labor. This is your life. Yeah. Now, watch. Here's why. So that you will prove yourselves to be. Now, I like the way it translates that because that's, that's an accurate translation. That you will prove yourselves to be. You already are, but this is how you prove yourselves to be. Blameless and innocent. Children of God. How do you prove to the world that you're a child of God? How do you do it? Letting God work in you and do it without grumbling or disputing. Let him work in you. Let him do what he does. Let him work that salvation that's so deep inside you, that's so rich inside you. Let him work it out into something beautiful. Excuse me, beautiful. Then it says, so you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Children of God, above reproach. So nobody can really have any solid thing on you in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Now, I know crooked and perverse are very close together, but so is wicked and perverse, like Peter said. You got to see the world is messed up. I know that's not like the Twitter quote of the, of the morning. The world is messed up. Hashtag Pastor Jonathan. That's hashtag truth, hashtag real. Like that's, you know that. Yeah, hashtag capital preach. Some of you aren't Twitter, so you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> some, some preachers, that's their whole sermon. It's just a collection of Twitter quotes, and that they're just hoping they make the trend. But anyways, it says here, we want to be above reproach. We're proving that we're above reproach in the middle, not on the outskirts, not on the fringe, not even in a different community, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Appear is not the best translation of this word. In fact, those of you who are reading from this translation will notice in your column, it says, not appear, but shine. I rarely go back to the NIV, but I think the NIV captures the essence of this verse quite well. It says there, in which you shine as stars in the universe. Why does it say that? Because the Greek word for, for lights here and stars is not talking about merely a reflective light. It's talking about something that is producing light. You are in the middle of a twisted, dark society, but you're supposed to be in the middle of it. 
God put you there. He sowed you into the world. He said, I don't ask that you take them from the world, but that you keep them from the wicked one. He put you there on purpose. You're supposed to be in the darkest places, being the brightest light. Because what does a wicked and perverse generation need? What does a crooked and perverse generation need? They need light. What does darkness need? They need light. What does something twisted need? It needs to see what's straight. You know, the old saying is so true. We don't just curse the darkness. We don't spend our time cursing the darkness. We want to spend our time lighting a candle. You could walk down into the bathroom downstairs, turn the lights off, and, and, and just say, I hate darkness. I hate it so much. And you start preaching against it, and you start getting mad at it. You start yelling at it, but it won't change the darkness. What do you do? You turn on a light. And what happens when the light comes on? The darkness whoo, flees. It dissipates. What does the scripture tell us? What does it show us? When we really understand it, even from a scientific point of view, darkness is not a force in itself. Darkness, I know there are spiritual forces of darkness. The scripture says there were forces of darkness. But darkness in itself is the lack of light. That's why you can't walk around the beach on a sunny day with a flash dark and have a beam of darkness hit people. Right? Be the coolest thing in the world, but you can't doesn't exist. It's an impossibility. Why? Because darkness is just a place where there is no light. There are forces of darkness. There is a spirit of darkness. But it can't stand the light. The Bible tells us in John 1 that the darkness, there was the light, and the light came to a dark place, but the darkness could not, in one translation it says, could not comprehend it. In another translation it says, the darkness could not overpower it. There is a light which shines in the world. And the darkness does not understand it, but the darkness cannot overpower it. We shine like stars in the sky. In a dark place, we shine. Then it says this, holding fast. And once again, I think this isn't the best translation. Once again, you can look in your column. But what might be a better translation, and many of your Bibles say this, is it says holding forth. The King James says that as well. Holding forth the word of life. I think both can be true. You can hold on to it fast, which means hold on tight. But you hold it out. The word of life. That I might rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. We're going to spend the rest of our time just talking about this. The fact that we have been placed in a perverted civilization, a twisted culture, because that's what happens when you don't have God. Things get twisted. You think about what's the curse? What is the curse? When, when mankind was cursed, when they said, what's the curse? The first thing was they were separated from God. And being separated from God is the curse. But when that happened, the ground was cursed. So the ground became twisted. It, it produced thorns. It became hard to reap from that ground. Do you realize that before the curse, it was easy, easy to farm? It was easy to grow something? Because the Bible tells us that God said to Adam, he said, from now on, it w from the sweat of your brow and the toil, you, this is how you're going to have to get something from the ground. It's going to be hard work. Do you realize how easy it must have been? <laughs> that, that's amazing. Things became twisted. Our relationships were twisted. 
our view of God became twisted. And the further and further we got from him, the more twisted we were. And we still had good things around us. God created marriage. He created love between a man and a woman before man even sinned. Before there was a law, before there was a curse, there was man and woman. And yet, what do we do with it? You have 12-year-olds sleeping around. You got men so addicted to pornography, women addicted to pornography. You've got people, uh, you know, trying to make themselves happy by having these one on, you know, quick encounters that are making them feel more empty than they were to begin with, and they're missing it all. That God created something beautiful, and we messed it up. But it's messed up because it's separated from Him. God put Adam and Eve in a world that had gold in the mountains. And diamonds that they didn't even know were there. Yet we twisted it to make that shiny rock the purpose of life rather than God himself. Do you see that everything good can be twisted, but everything twisted can be made right again? As we come upon a season where you walk down the street and you see strange things in people's yards, most of it's just tacky. Just tacky is the word I'd use, right? Like these are people that are classy any other day of the year. Just tacky. For real? Yeah, cobwebs really makes the place look sellable. Yeah, I like that. I like spiders. I like spider webs. I don't use them as decoration. They're just not, you know. But when you see certain things celebrated, you know, I mean, it's getting more gory and gory. It's crazy. But you realize, you know what? I know somebody might say, well, it's all in good fun. You got to understand. Like I said, I grew up ministering to people on reserves primarily. My dad was such a lover of the First Nations people that he spoke the language. He spoke several uh, native languages. He wrote in syllabics. Many of the, the folks in our church in Loon Lake can't write in syllabics anymore. In fact, none of them can. Nobody in the church can read syllabics. My dad could teach it. In fact, they invited him to reserve to teach it. So I had a love for our First Nation brethren. We, we would go to these reserves. And you know what we'd hear from time to time by somebody that was opposed to the gospel? That's white man's religion. We try to explain to them, you know, God, you know, Jesus. I mean, I know he, wasn't, he probably wasn't black, but he wasn't white. You know? It's not white man's religion. But I, I, I tell them, you know, my ancestors worshipped spirits in the trees and spirits in the animals. And th- these were my ancestors, my Celtic ancestors. And do you know what? When we come upon this Halloween season, I've never seen a pure example of what white man's religion is than Halloween. I'm like, this is my ancestors' religion. This is Samhain. This is Druidism come to life again. This is them so afraid and so in bondage to evil spirits that tormented them that they tried to pay them off so they leave them alone for a while. Or they try to merge, you know, this was the, 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 the merging of, of one night where they believed the spirit world and the, the natural world came together. You know, if they're not fellowshipping with the Holy Spirit, they're not fellowshipping with a good spirit. No, they're not. And it's not granny, and it's not your uncle, and it's not George Washington. It is an evil spirit that's deceiving you and wants to kill you. And I'm not going to celebrate my ancestors being imprisoned and in bondage to that for centuries. I celebrate their deliverance. I celebrate guys like Patrick that went over to the people that made him a slave and said, picked up a clover and then said, oh, you lucky clovers. At the end of the rainbow, there's a pot of gold. (laughs) 
He picks up a clover. It has three parts to it. And he says, let me explain to you, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one. I, I, I look at the great men and women that gave their lives, that were burned at the stake, that were beheaded, that had their guts cut out in front of them while they watched because they dared to preach the gospel. And I celebrate them. I don't celebrate bondage. I don't celebrate death. I celebrate Jesus. So you realize, even now, it's evident. We live in a culture that celebrates all the wrong things. But what do we do? Do we just curse it? Or do we light a candle and say, look, here's the light? Because here is a picture. He does not say, you live in a perverted generation, so we need to start a petition. He doesn't say, we live in a perverted generation. So here's what you need to do. You need to get all your friends and you need to run for office and make it illegal to do every, every single sin you can think of. It's all illegal because you know what? Even if you made it illegal, they couldn't be free from it without Jesus. So what does he say? Hold forth the word of life. Shine as stars in the universe. Shine your light. Hold the word of life out. And for every dying man that needs that drink of water, there is life for him. For every woman that is in bondage, there is deliverance for her. Go out and set the captives free. Don't go yell at them because they're in prison. Don't go, get, go, don't go saying, you know, you idiot. You don't know how to get out of there. I'm out. I got out. You know that you didn't get out on your own. So you go and you set them free. You go and tell them what it's like on the outside. Tell them what the real world's like. Tell them what it's like in the presence of God. Show them the presence of God. And this is the life that we've been called to. I'm reminded in Ephesians 5 when it talks about your light. Therefore walk as children of light. And it goes on to say later, it says, don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but expose them. And I think about where those Ephesians came from. You know, the church in Ephesus was a very dark place. Ephesus was a dark place. It was much like our society today. There was lots of commerce. There were lots of different cultures that mixed together. But there was great sin and great perversion. The temple, the great temple to Diana or Aphrodite, as she was called by the Greeks, was there. And they tell us that if you walk by that temple, even a secular historian would say, and I've told you this before, but even a secular historian of the time said, your young men will grow to lust and your young woman would blush at the perversion that was taking place in the temple. It's a great place of darkness. Even the Jews that had migrated to Ephesus had mixed sorcery with their belief in God. Therefore, when the seven sons of Sceva tried to cast out an evil spirit in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preached, they didn't believe in Jesus. They just believed it was one more spell that would work. And they were sons of a priest. This is how far they had fallen. Paul walks into that city. The first 12 people he meets, he says, have you heard of the Holy Spirit? They said, we didn't know there was a Holy Spirit. We believe in Jesus. But we didn't even know about the Holy Spirit. He says, we better fix that right now. They are filled and baptized in the Holy Spirit. He begins to teach those guys. Those guys invite their friends. And when they're not welcome in the synagogue, they go to a pagan theater, a, a, a place of philosophy. And he begins to preach from there in the middle of the day. They get so fired up that their city begins changing all around them. 
So many people come to the Lord in the place which has been so held by sorcery and witchcraft. Everybody who had a job believed that you had certain spells that would keep your business doing well and your competitor's business doing badly. Certain gods and goddesses that they believed were looking out for them. And so books of magic would be worth one of the most valuable things you owned because it was the thing that kept you afloat. And when they became born again, the Bible says that they came and began confessing and disclosing their practices. I don't know if you know how big that is. They weren't just saved. They wanted nothing to do with this other stuff. They didn't just turn to God. They turned from something. So much so that they said, I got to tell you what I was into so I can be completely free. Praise God. They confessed their practices. They disclosed their practices, but they knew that wasn't enough. So they went back home and they got that valuable book of spells and magic that had been passed on from their dad and their grandpa that maybe they'd spent a lot of money on. And it was the most treasured possession in their house. And they said, I'm not having anything to do with this. And in the very middle, in the center of this place of iniquity, slowly one guy puts his book down. His friends come and they put their books down. Somebody lights the pile and more and more people start throwing books on the pile in front of their neighbors, in front of everybody that thinks they're insane for doing it. They throw their books on the fire. The books of magic, listen guys, they didn't go to the bookstore and say, I'm gonna buy all this guy's books and burn them as a symbol. Because you and I know that only helps them. They didn't go to their friends and steal their books and burn their friends' books. Most any. Book burning I've heard of in the past 10 years has been just mostly ridiculous. Here's what they were doing. They were burning their books. And they weren't doing it for their neighbors. They were doing it for them. But they did it inside of their neighbors. Watch. We're no longer part of the same system. We've turned to God. We've turned from idols and we've turned, from God, turned to God. We've turned from sorcery into the power of God. We've turned from evil spirits and we worship God and we fellowship with the Holy Spirit. And as this bonfire raged, some people rejoiced and some people were terrified. So much so that they have to have a meeting. Because those people at that perverted temple where all those sexual acts were taking place, where there was worship of other gods, where Diana or Epaphrodites, or sorry, not Epaphrodites, Aphrodite was being exalted and worshipped. In that place, they were making their money from selling these stupid silver little idols. People would come and believe that this would bless their house, but those people are getting saved. So they start a meeting and say, we can't have this because what's going to happen is if this is preached and preached and preached. It's growing so big that here's what's going to happen. The gospel, if it continues to be preached, will be out of business because nobody will buy our stupid little idols for an inflated price because they won't believe it anymore. He says, not only that, but the whole world worships Diana. And if this keeps getting preached, she will be overthrown and removed from her magnificence and nobody's going to worship her anymore. And you know what? They were right. And the beautiful thing is that when they start this riot, they're only proving what we knew all along. The gospel wins. And it closes out with this. So the word of God was growing mightily and was winning. The word of God wins. The word of God conquers. The word of God overcomes. 
And that's why, friends, we have got to be not only stars in the universe. How do we shine? Well, we work out what God's already placed in us, but we also hold out that word of life. Think about what that means. He calls it the word of life. It's not the word of condemnation. It's not the word of death. It's the word of life that you get to hold on tight to, and you get to hold it out in front of you, and it lights the way, and every bit of darkness around you, no matter that you've been placed in the middle, and you say, God, what's wrong with you? Why would you put me in the middle of so much darkness? And he says, I put you in the middle of darkness because that's where we need the light. Shine the light. Hold out the word of life and watch what happens. Guys, he's given us a candle. He's given us a torch. He's given us a flame in a dark place, and he's created you to be one of them. And we hold it out. I'm not scared of the dark. God's not afraid of the dark. You shouldn't be afraid of the dark. The world's perverted. It's crooked. It's twisted. And if you, if you, if you become too comfortable with it, you'll get twisted too. If your main source of entertainment is what they put out, you'll get twisted. If the stuff you're listening to all the time is what they put out, you'll get twisted. But you know what? Find his word as not just the word of life for somebody else, but the word of life for you. Find your life in it. Find your purpose in it. Find your meaning in it. And I guarantee the world will see the light of Jesus Christ. Don't, don't curse the darkness. Just, just light a candle. Light a torch. Light a beacon. Be the light. People will see the light. You know that? And I'm just so thankful for you this morning because I know that God has called you for such a time as this. The time is growing near where it will be less and less, less and less popular to be what you are. Less and less accepted. You might not always get a a tax receipt for your giving. Is that going to stop you from giving? You might not always... Be allowed to say what you say in public and proclaim that there is one truth and one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. You might not be able to proclaim the word of God in public and get away with it. Will you still proclaim the word of God? Because it's life. Who cares what they do? We have light and we have life. The Bible says in him was light and Jesus was light. And that light was the life of men. I, skip, I messed it around. It says, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. And he enlightens every man who will believe. Amen? Amen? Stand up with me this morning. God is so good. 